Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 22nd, 2017, and this is episode 2008 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today because you guys wrote the show. These are all things that came to me for feedback because it is Feedback Day, Feedback Monday. I know it doesn't make... A rhyme to like Taco Tuesday, but maybe we could come up where we could crowdsource something out there for Feedback Monday that actually, like Feedback Friday would work, but we're not going to have Feedback Friday. We have Council Friday. So could we come up with something for Monday that would work, that would sound cool for the feedback shows? Up to you. Don't really need it, but hey, who knows? You don't find an answer if you don't ask the question. That's something we try to teach you here. Anyway, we do have a lot of questions and comments for today's show. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. McDonald's is now Ubering deliveries. Why this is a bigger deal than you think it is. And Uber is now in the freight business as well. It's also a bigger deal than most people think it is. The American chestnut will probably actually be restored in our lifetime from the uh, devastation of the blight without GMOs, says Penn State University. Choosing between the 177 and 22 in a pellet gun. A man found innocent in court is serving prison time anyway. Yeah, really. Um, understanding 22 short, long, and long rifle and what guns they can and can't go in and proper storage of ammunition. Lots of gun stuff there toward the end. Um, just took them in the order they came in as I screened them, though, guys. If you want to get a, a comment or suggestion or article or question on a show for Monday, just send an email to jack at the survival podcast dot com jack at the survival podcast dot com with tspc in the subject line I actually have a few uh, a few subjects less than normal for a show like today to uh, make it go a little quicker got some things I got to take care of today but didn't want to leave you guys without a new show this Monday before we get into all of those things let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day guys you know prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food water shelter security and energy and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 2008 because the episode is 2008. Here's what I have. Two from Alex Shrugged. The Large Hadron Collider does not destroy the world. And I have the subprime mortgage crisis timeline. From South Bob Ben, I have Kosovo declares independence. And some notable things. How about notable deaths this year? Heath Ledger died at age 28. Accidental overdose of prescription drugs. Played the Joker in the Batman movie, The Dark Knight. He also did a fairly good job in uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, and I really liked him in one of my favorite movies, 
A Knight's Tale. If you ever want to just be inspired about what's possible in life and just have a good time while you're watching a movie, check out A Knight's Tale. George Carlin died age 71 of heart failure, a comedian and social commentator. He had entered rehab two years prior for alcohol and Vicodin addiction. It's too bad. I liked George Carlin. Don LaFontaine, uh, age 68, died of collapsed lung, the voice of God in Geico commercials, and in every movie trailer beginning in, with the words, in a world where, you would know the name, or you would know the voice if you heard it, let me tell you that. Uh, Michael Crichton died age 66 of cancer, Tony Snow age 53 of cancer, and William F. Buckley Jr. age 81 of a heart attack. This year in film, The Dark Knight, the sequel to Batman Begins, Kung Fu Panda, and Hancock, Iron Man, and Mamma Mia. This year in TV, the 80th Academy Awards, lowest rating ever, hosted by Jon Stewart. Uh, Super Bowl 42, highest ratings ever, the Giants overturn a 12-point favorite Patriots. And HBO's John Adams, an excellent miniseries on one of our founding, founding fathers. John and Abigail Adams kept their, letters to, kept their letters to each other. It's a beautiful love story, but remember, they knew we would be reading those letters someday. Indeed, I'll tell you what, it's a fantastic miniseries. And... If there's a bad thing about it, and I don't want to, almost don't want to say this because it makes it sound worse than it is, but it goes downhill after the first two episodes. The first two episodes are so historically accurate. They tell the story of the Boston Massacre, the Continental Congress, and leading up to the Declaration of Independence. And the rest of the movie doesn't really go deep into the revolution because John Adams wasn't you know, on battlefields and things like that. Uh, it goes through his time in France. He was painfully awkward in France uh, as a diplomat uh, alongside uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was actually very good as a diplomat, though he looked like he was just screwing off, but that's what the French expected, etc. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's true to his flaws as a man, I think, is what makes it very, very uh, good. And I, I, I totally endorse watching the whole thing. I just think that you'll find the first two episodes to be amazing. And I frankly have thought often that once a year, our entire government, our Congress, our Senate, our President and all, should be strapped in a room with their eyes taped open and forced to watch those first two episodes of John Adams uh, to understand exactly how much went into making the nation that they're shitting on on a daily basis. Just... Honest to God, that's how I feel about that. Uh, next up, uh, Year in Music, Touch My Bonnie, Put Me on the Floor from Mariah Carey, whatever. Uh, rehab from Amy Winehouse. He's, uh, Alex says Amy's going to die because she knows better than the folks at rehab. Uh, I guess that's true. Single Ladies Put a Ring on It from Beyonce. And Our Song from Taylor Swift. This year in video games, the Nintendo Wii is an outstanding, is outselling all other consoles. Uh, the games for Wii are also top sellers, such as Mario Kart Wii. Wii is one of the few video games I've played in the last 15 years, or I should say video systems I've played in the last 15 years I actually enjoyed, uh, and it was just bowling, just a plain old bowling on Wii. When my kid got that, we, uh, we, we did a lot of the bowling because it was, well, it was like bowling. It was uh, crazy how much it was uh, accurate like bowling to me. Grand, not quite uh, virtual reality, but getting there, you know. Grand Theft Auto 4 for Xbox and PlayStation, and game developer Joseph Batten murders his wife, Melissa, and then blows his brains out. She was in beta testing, so you know it would not end well. Hmm. But wait, she had a court order. Apparently paper does not deflect bullets. Indeed. In other news, the FDA declares that cloned cattle, swine, and goats are safe to eat. Government Elliot Spitzer is laughed out of office. A 7.9 magnitude earthquake strikes China, killing over 87,000 people. Microsoft CEO Bill Gates retires. 
Um, an L.A. Metrolink train hits a freight train head-on, killing 25. Uh, Alex says his cousin ended up having both of his knees replaced. It was part of that accident, I guess. And Hamas terrorists fire rockets into Gaza in, from Gaza into Israel. Israel invades. Um, so before I read the subprime mortgage crisis timeline, I have to tell you about a historical event that was not mentioned on the wiki here. In June 2008, first episode of the Survival Podcast launched. And I'll inject a little bit of survival podcast history into this timeline. Uh, when America thinks of the Great Recession, they usually think of 2008. Those who had the sense uh, that something terrible was coming were already out of the market. Everyone else is hosed. The current subprime mortgage market is $1.3 trillion. In simple terms, that is in the, more than the total value of actual U.S. dollar bills and coins everywhere. Let me explain that. The $1.3 trillion is more than there are dollar bills and coins. Only about 3% of the M3 exists in physical money, just so you know. that's all. So most of our money is actually zeros and ones and, and digitized. Anyway, in the closing days of last year, as companies tried desperately to save themselves, it became obvious the U.S. government would intervene. 2008 is the beginning of that intervention. The list is brief. I cannot possibly cover everything, not even everything that is important, so here we go. January 11, Bank of America buys out Countrywide Financial, who owns 20% of U.S. mortgages. They were my mortgage company, says Alex Shrugged. Bear Stearns is sold off to J.P. Morgan Chase at fire sales price. That's $10 a share versus $133 a year ago. Bear Stearns was leveraged 35.6 to 1 when it came apart. And I'll remind you that Jim Cramer said you were crazy if you sold it just a couple weeks before it crashed. Just, just saying. Uh, July 11, IndyMac Bank fails with $32 billion in assets. They were in the hole for $10 billion when there was a run on the bank. Bye-bye. Like July 11th, there was about 10 episodes of TSP online. Okay, July 19th, the Dow Jones closes above 14,000, the highest close in history. August 10, the Federal Reserve injects $43 billion into the U.S. economy. Other countries follow suit. By now, there's this crazy redneck uh, named Jack Spirico on the air, and he is screaming at this point, Get out, get out, get out, get out, get out of the market, get out of the market, get out of the stock market. Dave Ramsey is telling you to stay the course. I'm just saying. August 31st, President Bush announces a limited bailout for homeowners. The reality is a bailout for the banks, so they won't have to make a deal with the homeowners. September 7, the U.S. government takes over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They are two largest mortgage financing institutions in the U.S. Cash counts for political appointees on their board of trustees. September 15th, after 158 years, Lehman Brothers fails. Investors believed it was too big to fail until it did. September 16th, AIG is bailed out by the U.S. government. They are holding the bag for $57.8 billion. The government won't let them fail. September 28th, Mad Money host Jim Cramer advises getting out of the stock market now. It's a bit late. The Dow, September 29th, the Dow Jones drops 777 points. Uh, October 3rd, President Bush creates a $700 billion fund to save the banks. As I understand it, the banks are required to take the money, whether they think they need it or not, to prevent a run on the banks that actually need it. December, the Dow Jones drops another 680 points upon the news that the Great Recession has begun. President Bush will get the blame, but in fact, there is plenty of blame to go around, particularly to Congressman Barney Frank, chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. Yes, yeah, somehow he just got left out. Um, and then we all know what happened by, by February... The Dow Jones was down February of, of 2009, down into the 7,000 range. Um, early listeners of this show, if they heeded the advice that they were given, did not take this bath. 
They and, and I, people have looked back to the beginning of TSP and said that Spirico is some kind of Nostradamus because I saw this coming. Guys, no, there was no magic in this. This was one of the largest telegraphed financial punches in history. Just no one would listen. No one would believe it. And to be a little bit fair to Jim Cramer, you can see why people like him can't scream, get out, get out, get out, get out. There was some level of his impact in that 777-point drop the next day. When someone with that kind of you know, mainstream coverage screams, get out. Could you imagine if Dave Ramsey had told the 2 million people a day that listen to him, get out, get out, get out? So here's my thing. Um, when it comes to taking care of my audience and screaming, get out or get in, Uh, I don't care what impact my opinion has because I know the greater impact is the actual fundamentals behind the scenes. And in 2008, the fundamentals were lousy. And the market was over-leveraged. And it was overpriced. And just think about that today with the stock market sitting at almost $21,000. Uh, I'm not screaming get out right now. I'm telling you, be careful. Be careful what you're doing with your investments. Of course, that is always sound advice. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. All right, let's start off with uh, our lead story today. Steven just sent me the following. He says, McDonald's is using Uber to deliver food. Sitting in my local McDonald's and they have a sign-up for delivery through the Uber app. Imagine if this catches on how many less stores they will need. And it's not just them. If Mickey D's does it, others will have to. This has... Huge ramifications. Indeed, it's, it's a bigger deal than people think it is. And it is not really about McDonald's. Um, this is actually not a new thing. Maybe the McDonald's thing is a little bit new. Um, he didn't send a link. So, of course, I vet things when people say, like, you know, this is at McDonald's. Well, McDonald's is a franchise. Okay, so... There is some autonomy of franchise owners. McDonald's is pretty tight with their franchisees. They're one of the tightest companies with franchisees there is. But there is some flexibility in a McDonald's franchise. So a local McDonald's could have set something up with some local Uber drivers. Is this a thing? Well, it is a thing. Uh, there's an article that came out May 17th on The Verge. I have a link to it in the show notes. I'm not going to read it to you, but just give you the... the uh, Uh, the headline and the subtitle, uh, you can now order McDonald's from Uber Eats in more than 1,000 locations, expanding to Los Angeles and Chicago. Hmm. So, um, you can see the value here, the value play here. Let's, ex let's start out with the bigger story. The bigger story is Uber Eats, and that's been around for a while, and there's quite a few different restaurants that utilize Uber Eats. And that's just simply that if they cover your area and they cover a particular restaurant, you can basically order, you know, chicken fried steak, uh, mashed potatoes, and fried okra from Black Eyed Pea, 
and an Uber guy will go by and pick your order up and bring it to your house. Um, I, I know the temptation immediately is to think, well, this is just great. The fat guy doesn't even leave his house anymore to go to McDonald's. Or, you know those lazy-ass people that can never make it to McDonald's for breakfast? Now they can get their breakfast from McDonald's because they don't even have to leave the house. And, and there's some truth to all of that. But what this actually does is, is continue to lessen the need for people to own vehicles. See, that's, that's the bigger story in this whole, this whole world, the whole Uber, Lyft, etc. world, the whole ride-share world, the whole world of the sharing economy. And I think it's a long time, honestly, before the average American family says, I don't need a vehicle. But what I think is going to happen is you're going to have a lot of people that were two vehicle households becoming one vehicle households. Or you're going to have people that were three vehicle becoming two. Or you're going to see an awful lot of maybe this type of thing. They're a two vehicle household, but one of them becomes like Jack Spierko's vehicle. Now, for me, it's not because of Uber and Lyft, etc., because the jerks won't come to my house yet. Because if they did, I would never drive downtown to have dinner with friends. I just wouldn't. Because then I could have two drinks instead of one, and I wouldn't have to worry about getting home. And the sad thing is they'll bring me home. They just won't come get me. Like you cover Jerry's just right over there. Um, but the re reason I don't go anywhere much is because, well, I work from home, and I have my farm. And if I do go somewhere during the day, if Dorothy's home, I, and you know, she doesn't work uh, a table job anymore, so... I take the the SUV, the the Forerunner. So, you know, you know, like, but I can see a lot more people that, that end up like me, where you have this extra vehicle in case you need it, a truck or something, but it gets five thousand miles a year put on it, if that. And I think if I didn't go on hunting trips, it wouldn't get five thousand miles a year. You know, it goes eleven miles to the materials place and comes back once in a while. Or if I have to go to the store to pick something up or whatever and Dorothy's not home, I take it. Or, you know, if we have to drop her vehicle off for service, that's, that's probably the longest trip that truck takes anymore is down a Toyota dealership to get her vehicle serviced. But I can see a lot more people doing that. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means quite a few things. It means less vehicles on the road. That's a good thing. It means less tax revenue for maintaining the roads, which the government, of course, is going to solve with taxing us by the mile and tracking every vehicle everywhere it goes, something I told you back in, well, 2009. Um, but it, it, it's a continued disruption. It's a continued disruption. And the thing is, these giant disruptors of Uber and Lyft and, and, and things like them, they're about to get disrupted. See, the speed of disruption is the story here. And I, I want to hold on that for just a second because I want to go into our next story that also involves Uber uh, before I kind of talk about the disruptors being disrupted. Okay, this is about the launch of Uber Freight. This is a story that is on The Verge. It is on, uh, launched May 18, 2017. Uh, Title, Uber Launches Uber Freight. It's app for long-haul trucking jobs, and this came in from David B. He says, it's good for Uber, Uber Freight. I'll be very curious to see the amount of independents that get rolling on this. Um, I'm going to couch what I'm about to say here with, I don't know a lot about the trucking industry as it relates to franchise and independent truckers, okay? Um, and I know the trucking community is very tight, and I know there's a lot that goes on inside that industry that the rest of America just don't know shit about, okay? So... I'm, I'm not trying to speak as somebody that knows the trucking industry. I'm just speaking from a standpoint of what I've observed over the years and how I think this might impact things. So the concept, let's talk about the concept of this. There's a great video on there, but playing it won't do you any good because it's 90% visual and like 10% audio. It doesn't really, it's not really an explanation in text. So 
what the way this works is a trucker pulls up his Uber app and sees there's a freight that's available, what kind of freight it is, where it leaves, where it goes, and how much it pays. He accepts it, and as soon as he drops off his load, he's paid electronically. Boom, done. Okay. Um, and then he can look for a return trip or a trip from that port to somewhere else. And in this article, it points out that that's actually a big deal. In other words, if I'm an Uber driver and uh, I take you into Fort Worth and there's no immediate fare in Fort Worth and I just kind of cruise back toward home and keep my app on and look for something along the way, it's not a big deal. If I've driven a, a semi from Dallas to Los Angeles, finding something near L.A. to pick up and take somewhere else is going to be important, and that's a challenge. I also think the challenge is the solution. I think that generally speaking, freight is something that is fairly well managed. It has to be. And being able to book a, a, a trip with a return is going to become very, very quickly available here. However, this is my, my concern because I don't know. How many independents are left? Like My understanding is the independent has become like an endangered species in trucking. Maybe this changes that. Maybe this is the disruption to that industry that brings it back. But I remember back in the 80s, and my dad being in the tire business, you might imagine a lot of tires had to move around in the tire business, um, knowing quite a few different truck drivers. And, and then his, his service station, um, you know, he sold diesel, so he had truckers that came in. And just as a kid talking to, you know, adult men around me, I remember most truckers were independent that I met. Now, I don't know what the percentage was. I've not looked into this. I just know that I've met a lot of independent truckers and that I don't meet anywhere near as many truckers that are independents anymore. They're all driving for somebody else. Um, when I was a teenager, I remember this guy that was a good friend of my uncle's. He had a piece of property that we could use. Like the, the land was actually open to anybody to hunt, but it was a hard piece of land to get into. But on his property, he could just walk straight out his backyard and hit it. And, and so we used to access a place called Blackwood through his property. His name was Murph. And he uh, was an independent trucker. And he had built up business to the point where he had bought, a, he'd bought his rig. He paid for it. He was running his rig. He bought a second rig and had a, a driver driving under him. He had, and he ended up with two drivers driving under him plus his own rig. And he had bought this really beautiful place for cash money. And this is back in the 80s. So I don't hear as many stories like that, though I do have a friend from the Army that I know has built a trucking company, and I think he started as a driver for someone else, became an independent, and then went on to form a company. And you can see why companies would want to control things in any industry, not just trucking. So my understanding, again, not being an expert in the world of trucking, is it's become very hard comparatively to operate as an independent today as it did in the past. When, you know, if you work for a, a freight company, you have your, you know, you get your route and you're there. Like that truck's going back and forth and you just do your deal. Um, this article mentions that most truck drivers are white men and that it's been difficult for females and people of color to break into the industry. I'm sorry, I know a lot of different people of color that are truck drivers. So I, I don't buy that so much, but it is a male-dominated industry. I don't know how much of that's because, well, that's what, that's what men, you know, more men want to do it than women, uh, though I do know a couple trucking companies here in Texas that have women working, and shockingly enough, they're undercutting the market by working for less, and that's why they're working, uh, hauling between West Texas and out here. Um, 
and not making really good money, honestly, compared to what would be typical of a of a long distance, not an over, you know, not an overnight, but I, actually it is an overnight run at that at that point. Um, just don't seem to be making the, the same money per hour or per mile that that others are. So I don't know. I don't know what the state of independent trucking is today. I've seen a lot of things on the back of trucks saying, you know, come drive for us, and there's a mileage price. I have to imagine that person's independent. But if you're getting paid by the mile, it must be your vehicle, right? So what does this do? Well, here's, here's the bigger thing. What does all of this do to disrupt the market? Getting your, 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 your Big Mac delivered from McDonald's, uh, getting a ride into town instead of taking your own car, or changing the way freight flows throughout the country. Well, it disrupts the establishment. Whether it's good or bad is irrelevant to the fact that it is a disruption, and it's going to cause a lot of bloodletting on the way. And I think overall the trend is a good trend for society and humanity, but that doesn't mean it's not going to hurt while it happens. I think of it a lot like some surgical procedures. If the doctor doesn't do this, you're going to die, uh, so you're going to have it done, but you're going to wake up in a lot of pain and in ICU, and you're going to have to go through physical therapy to get back on your feet again, but you need to do it, and you'll be better for it. I think a lot of these shifts are like that. The issue, though, for all of these things that are happening, that you know, Amazon has a service like this for delivery of products now, guarantee you they're going to expand into this space. They're just using. See, they have something that no one else does. That's what. See, you have to understand the, the mega trend here. Why would Uber go into Uber Eats? Well, because their drivers move more. If their if their drivers are moving, they make money. If their drivers aren't moving, they're not making money. Now they don't lose much because they have no underlying real heavy infrastructure cost. But also their drivers are more happy because they get more to do and it solves the problem. I just took Jack Spirico downtown to the Bird Cafe to drink two Old Fashions instead of one because he don't want to drive home with two Old Fashions in it. And now I need to get you know, another fare out of downtown and there isn't one available right now. But some guy over on the west side of Fort Worth wants a Big Mac. Well, I'll go pick that up, run that over to him, make my gas money for the day drop off his Big Mac while I'm waiting for another fare to pick up. And I can hustle more. And I can move around more. And I can get into different areas. And, gee, as the smart apps start to come online and the, these apps get smarter and smarter, it'll be the point where, well, while I'm going to pick Jack up, I'm going to deliver this guy's Big Mac, and then I'm going to, I'm going to get more out of my, my trip. Well, that's going to happen with freight, too. And that already, I know enough about trucking to know that already happens in the freight industry. That a lot of times a truck will load up three quarters and then put another load on in the back that's going to be unloaded first, and they that way they you know they get more efficiency. That that happen, that kind of thing happens all the time. So I think that that's all good and well, but then what happens when things like Swarm City come out and hashtag Need a Ride takes a disruption to the disruptors? And this is this is the part you got to understand. How long did it take for something to really disrupt the cab industry? The cab industry has had a stranglehold on the marketplace since the first cabs existed. Let's say since the 50s, heavily. From the 1950s all the way up to, let's say, 2012. Because Uber's relatively new even in our world. Just a stranglehold. And from 2012 to 2017, Uber has eviscerated the cab industry. It's still there. It's still the main resistance. But when you, if you travel, 
and you go to a city like Seattle or L.A., and you don't rent a car, do you call Uber or do you call a freaking taxi today? Well, you call Uber. And how much is that taken away from them? Okay, so it took 80 years for that industry to be disrupted. If everything goes right with Swarm City or some competitor, these disruptors will be disrupted in less than 10. Think about that. That that's this 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 acceleration of disruption is it, it, it is it is exponential, and it is something we need to keep an eye on. And it is a bigger deal than than the TV's telling you right now. When they start talking about it, it'll be too late to profit from it or avoid pain from it. That's why I spent so much time talking about it right now because those are the two things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help you figure out some level of counter economics that you can use to benefit from this, or help you position yourself so you're not overly hurt by it. Let's go on and take something else, though, and move on. This next one comes from Ben. Ben uh, of Southpaw Ben fame, right? Uh, found this article and thought you might be interested in it as it talks about using selective breeding and hybridization to save the American chestnut with no genetic modification involved. It also touches on government and how private organizations uh, can and are doing more things than government could or would do. I'm going to be a little bit fair about this because it does show a lot with private initiative, but whenever you have an organization like Penn State University involved, uh, there's a lot of public dollars in this too. Just, just, I mean, I don't want to give the government credit for anything. Honestly, I don't, but I will where they get some. Um, this was published May 16, 2017. It's a brand new story. It says, American Chestnuts Rescue will succeed, but slower than expected. Let me read you a bit of this. University Park, Pennsylvania, the nearly century-old effort to employ selective breeding to rescue the American chestnut, which has been rendered functionally extinct by introduced blight disease, uh, eventually will succeed, but it will take longer than many people expect. That's the gist of findings from a new study conducted by a research team composed of scientists from Penn State the American Chestnut Foundation, and State University of New York. The research should trump down expectations of both the public and some members of science community that victory is imminent, but it also provides reassurance that the rescue ultimately will result in chestnuts flourishing in forests again, according to author Kim Steiner, professor of forest biology, Penn State College of Agricultural Science. To reach their conclusion, researchers reviewed and evaluated decades of breeding records and transgenic experiments, new experimental data, and made projections related to how current selection and incorporation of transgenic material into breeding lines will expedite blight resistance. They considered environmentally-based estimates of heritability and genetic gain for blight resistance that were never available before this research was conducted. Quote, those estimates are why we know now for sure it's just a matter of time, end quote, Steiner said. Quote, very few people understand the magnitude of the breeding challenge embarked upon by the American Chestnut Foundation when it began in 1983. Just to complete the B3F2 generation of breeding and selection, the final generation as originally envisioned has meant that 73,000 trees must be created by hand pollination and grown and tested in uh, plantations Uh, for a minimum of three years. B3F2 is the third backcross, intercross generation of Chinese and American chestnuts. The process began in 2002 with the Foundation's main breeding program and probably will not be completed until 2022, Steiner added. Furthermore, it's being duplicated through the work of volunteers in 13 affiliated state programs. The Pennsylvania program is overseen by Sarah Fitzsimmons, a research technician in Penn State's Department of Ecosystem Science and Management and one of the study's co-authors. 
Um, it's a really long article, so I'll let you read the rest for yourself if you want to, but it is encouraging. But let me explain a little bit about what's going on here. So the Chinese chestnut was brought to North America, and it carried a blight, and the blight just destroyed the American chestnut. And then the government, trying to help, cut down all the chestnut trees. Basically, they sold out to the logging industry that made a fortune by doing, quote-unquote, a public service to cut by cutting down the trees to save them. Odds are, had we not done anything at all, if we had just left the chestnut trees alone or simply selectively harvested the ones that were blighted bad enough that you knew they were going to die, that there were genetics out there that would have recovered and we would have ended up with survivors, and those survivors could have been used to create prodigy that was blight-resistant. Okay, But that's not what was done. Uh, the, the, the chestnuts were just logged out across this country. And these trees, we can't get our head around how big these trees were. In many instances, you know, your average secondary bedroom in a house, if you go stand in there and then just make a circle in your mind so you round off the corners, that's about how big some of these trunks were. And there were lots of them. And the chestnuts fell in such quantities that even like hog farmers that didn't put their hogs into the woods would just go out to public land with you know those little small pickup trucks and trailers at the time and a number 10 coal shovel. And they would just load up free feed for their animals and take it and dump it to them. And, and they were producing incredibly you know, high-quality um, uh, protein, especially hogs fed on chestnuts. Just unbelievable. And there was just, it was just basically bread from trees. That's what chestnuts are. And when this blight hit, I think an important part of the story in all of this that no one ever seems to want to talk about is there's a little isolated region in the Pacific Northwest of the United States where American chestnuts grow. Not special chestnuts, just regular old American chestnuts. And that there's a guild there. And these people are not particularly interested in the return of the chestnut. Because why? Because they are selling a very premium product, the only American chestnuts left. And the American chestnut is superior to the Chinese chestnut in quality. Just, it is. And yields, production, everything. So, how did they come across trying to fix this problem? Well, they took, you know, the Chinese chestnut and American chestnut will hybridize. They'll cross. So they crossed them. And what you got was a 50-50 mix. Well, you don't, you're still not, ba you, now you have a blight-resistant hybrid chestnut. But it's still not giving you what you were getting from the American chestnut tree. So now you take that 50-50 hybrid. Now, this, it's a tree. It's not, it's not a, a flower, right? It takes a long time to get big enough to produce a nut. And it takes a long time to determine, well, does it have blight resistance? Because a lot of young chestnut trees, regular American will grow beautifully for a few years, and then all of a sudden blight hits them. So you've got to grow them long enough to see that they're actually blight resistant, and you've got to grow them long enough to see what kind of quality you're getting out of them. So now we take the 50-50 hybrid, we take American chestnut, and we cross it again. And we dilute the Chinese chestnut. And what we're trying to do is dilute it down to where there's almost nothing left of the Chinese chestnut in, in the character of the product, but yet the blight resistance remains. So we have to grow tens of thousands of trees, and they all have to be hand-pollinated and isolated so that we know the genetics behind them. And then we have to do that for multiple generations until we get something that looks like 
tastes like, acts like an American chestnut that has this tiny sliver of Chinese chestnut genetics in it that gives blight resistance and remains in a natural breeding of the new proven type. So in other words, when I take two of these chestnut trees and I cross them, now we're, we're just we're, you know equal amounts, equal parts of both. When they produce prodigy, they have to retain that, that resistance. Because just because they have it doesn't mean it's retained. And we have to keep breeding retainment, retainment, keep doing that. And, and this is the important lesson here for those of you doing experiments with doing your own crossing and hybridization and making new types, even in annuals. Breed first for survivability. That's the first thing you breed for. You don't breed, if you're trying to make a new uh, type of something, a new type of corn or whatever, you breed first for survivability. You breed the toughest first. And then you can select from the toughest first to get something that emerges earlier or has bigger ears or larger grains or something like that. So that, that's, this is exactly what they're doing here. This is very encouraging. And I think that this is one of those things that like humanity has a debt to the planet on. You know, I am not one of these people that, that buys into every environmental cause or whatever. And I think a lot of the left of environment, the left side of environmentalism is very loony. But what was done to the ecosystem in North America by removing the chestnut tree is a crime against nature. That is not hyperbole. That is not an overstatement. All one has to do is find pictures of the early 1900s before these trees were gone and understand what the mass drop was like and the quality of food that a chestnut represents and that being removed, not to mention the giant trees that eventually when they fell to the ground, the habitat that created, things like that, um, and just the timber value alone. We can sustainably harvest these trees as well. And so that, to me, this is like good news. And every once in a while, we need some good news. On the same token, there are people doing genetic modification of chestnuts with their own project that are also saying that very soon they're going to be able to restore the chestnut. So we're going to have both. So then the only concern does with these crossed is they're a negative, and I don't think there will be. And people get on me sometimes because, you know, I'm a free market person all, but I hate GMOs. And I think what people don't understand is I don't hate GMOs. I hate what GMOs are used to do today. I hate that GMOs are used to make a soybean that can then be sprayed with Roundup that you're going to eat because you can't wash it off. It goes inside the plant. I hate that GMOs are used to develop um, modifications to plants where you can just ignore the quality of the soil and we're having more and more of the, the, the country turned into desert by agriculture. I hate that genetically modifying a seed can then put a gene in it that becomes intellectual property that can be patented and that if that gene crosses into my farm where I don't want it, Monsanto can claim that I violated their patent and extort a license fee from me. These are things that I hate. Um, I'm still not 100% sold on ethical use of GMOs if that's possible, and I don't trust the companies doing it to be ethical, especially in a regulatory market where they can actually suppress their competition or patent a life form. But if the, if the American chestnut restoration is helped by GMOs, I will be the first one to say that is a positive contribution for the GMO industry. And it would be nice to have one to point to. It really would. And it might be PR. If it is, they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. And if some good comes out of it, some good comes out of it. But this overall is very good news. Let's take another one. 
Um, this comes from Tandy, and Tandy says, Jack, I have a question about air rifle selection. Details, if you've already decided to purchase something like the Crossman Nitro Venom Brake Barrel Air Rifle, which I reviewed last week, and I have a link in the show notes today, it's the best air rifle for the money in a piston, uh, single-cock air rifle on the market today, in my opinion. Okay, What factors do you suggest in considering between the 177 and 22 version? Thanks for all you do, Tandy. Well, Tandy, this is basically largely personal preference, but there are two main things to look at, utility and cost. So your 1.7, when you have uh, an air rifle model, I want to be very clear, we're talking about this, so this is the, the Crossman Nitro Venom brake barrel. So we have that model, and we have that model in a 22 and a 177. Those guns are identical except for the barrel. That's why some of these actually have an interchangeable barrel. You can actually take the 177 barrel off, put the, the 22 on. The Nitro doesn't do that. Those guns, I've owned a Beeman that does that. They have limited utility because it changes the zero when you go one barrel to the next. You have to readjust your scope. So there's limited utility there, but they're cool. Okay. Um, I think the Nitro Venom, again, is the best one out there, and I would stick to that if, if it seems like it's going to meet your needs from a size and functionality standpoint. But when we have the same model and all we do is change caliber, the 22 is more powerful. It's slower, but it has more energy, it does more damage on impact, and it's better for hunting. So, flat out. Accuracy, they are going to be so similar as to be almost identical because you could say, well, you know, they're equal in accuracy, but let's be honest. You could have two guns from the same manufacturer, put them side-by-side, side, sandbag them at 10 meters, and one of them might be more accurate than the other. So it's very possible if you bought one of each in that batch, maybe your 177 is a slightly more accurate one, and if you bought two more, the 22 could be more accurate. So, you know, um, in air rifle competitions, the 177 is standard. Part of that is because those guys are so accurate that they are shooting who has the smallest single hole out of a 10-shot group. So a smaller pellet makes a smaller hole. So there is that. But they both are accurate. Here's what it comes down to. Do you want to spend less on your pellets or do you want to hunt with your gun? This is my personal opinion. Um, 177 pellets cost less because there's less lead per pellet. Uh, so if you're going to do a lot of shooting for practice and plinking and, and breaking bottles or putting holes in cans or shooting you know, steel silhouettes that you made up or something like that, ringing little bitty gongs that you make for yourself and, and things like that, then I would go with the 177. If you're going to be shooting things with it that are bigger than a rat, um, I would go with the 22. If you're going to shoot rabbits and things like that, um, I would go with the 22. It has, it also has greater long-range doping ability for doping the wind. In other words, if you play with a 22 long enough, especially with a mill dot reticle, You can make pretty damn long shots out of that. That heavier pellet retains its energy over greater distance. When we go into the world of PBA uh, ammunition, which is light alloy pellets, um, the penetration of the 177 is impressive, and it really makes the most out of that added velocity. I'm not a big fan of those. I think we're trying to do things with an air rifle that an air rifle wasn't meant to do, especially a 177 or 22 caliber, so I stick to good old-fashioned lead. Personally, I own two pellet guns that, that you know basically stay in my office and get taken outside and played with all the time and are used to do things like knock a squirrel out of a tree or something like that. Uh, one is a Benjamin 392, the other is a Crossman Nitro Venom. 
they are both in 22 caliber. So that tells you what, what side I come down on. If I was going to start, like, if I was going to go through a routine where I was going to start sharpening up my rifle marksmanship, and I was going to make up a few different little steel targets like I have just for pinging, and so you got an audible report, yes, you hit that, and set them out various distances in my yard, and I was going to shoot 100 rounds a day, then I would go to a 177. If my primary use for it was training a shooter and I was going to put a lot of volume through it, I would go to a 177. Personally, I don't think the cost is that big of a difference that I am personally probably still going to come down on the side of the 22. I kind of look at it like this. There's nothing that the 177 can do that the, that the 22 can't do better except cost less money. So that, that, that's kind of where I am. That's, that's the long and short of it for me. But I think if you, if you settle in on that Crossman Nitro, you will, uh, you'll be happy. Again, there's a, a review that I've done of it recently. And I do think that for about 150 bucks, that rifle is equivalent to a lot of things that are in the $500 range today. That's, that's how good a job Crossman did with engineering that rifle. Um, and it really has a great break-in period compared to a lot of other uh, rifles like it as well. So uh, check that out, guys, if you're in the market. But, again, I'm back to are you going to target shoot or are you going to hunt? And if you're going to hunt, go with the 22. And look at the price of pellets and see if the, 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 the financial savings is worth it to you. If it's not, if you don't think it's, you know, price it out over 1,000 rounds. And it's, it's a few bucks. So if that matters to you, then go with the 177 if you're not going to hunt with it. If you don't care about the price differential for the volume of shooting, get the 22 because you never know when you might want to use it for hunting. This next one comes to me from Samantha, and it is a, well, I would just say it's a travesty of injustice in the American justice system. Uh, I actually have a video of this I'll play for you, so let's go ahead and hear that now. Or justice denied. In school, we're all... Is it a case, is it a case of justice served or justice denied? In school, we're all taught that a person is innocent until proven guilty, but investigator Rebecca Lindstrom shows us that in Georgia... That burden of proof isn't the same for everyone. The Lucky Lotto on Shorter Avenue in Rome is now closed. It's surrounded by weeds, almost frozen in time. No one ever won big here, but lives were certainly changed. And I would not like to trade places with her. On July 9, 2014, a convenience store clerk stood terrified as a robber held a gun to her head. The store surveillance video is grainy, almost useless. Police say the store was so dirty they couldn't take fingerprints. And according to the police report, the only description offered by the four witnesses inside was a black male dressed in dark clothing who may live nearby. I think what bothers me the most about this and what would bother most people about this is when people tell stories over and over again, they're supposed to remain consistent. But the clerk's story didn't remain consistent. A few months after the robbery, the clerk saw a picture of Ramad Chapman on Facebook. She told police that was the man. In her testimony, she said, it triggered something in me, and it just made me freak out. Ramad turned to a selfie. Why? Because he did not want the police looking for him. He felt he had nothing to hide. Right. Janice Chapman thought within hours her grandson would return home. Three years later... She is still waiting. He always said he was not guilty. He was very upset. 
In court, the clerk testified she remembered the tattoo under his eye vividly, but she couldn't remember any of the other tattoos on his face, or even neck, hands, and arms. According to court transcripts, each time she testified, she changed the description of the gun and his clothes. He should be in prison. He should not be in prison. Prison is full of people who claim to be innocent. But in this case, a jury actually agreed. At trial, Ramad Chapman was found not guilty of aggravated assault, not guilty of armed robbery. But he had more than a jury to convince. When Chapman was arrested for robbery, he was already on probation, sentenced as a first offender for breaking into an apartment to steal a TV. Chapman's grandmother says for two years he did everything asked of him to earn the right to have his conviction erased from his record. He made sure that he did right on his probation. He never violated. But Judge John Niedrak disagreed. While the jury didn't find the clerk's testimony credible, he did. Well, a jury must convict beyond a reasonable doubt. A judge in a probation revocation hearing only has to be convinced it's likely. And now he's in prison until 2022. In prison until 2022 after sitting through a jury trial and watching 12 members of his community tell him he did not commit that crime. With his probation revoked, Chapman had to go to prison for the original crime. The felony conviction will follow him forever. It is a 10-year sentence. For $120 TV. The DA, Lindstrom, 11 Alive Investigators. The DA's office could have also withdrawn the request to have Chapman's probation revoked, but it felt the differences in the clerk's testimony that were minor. Had he not been arrested for the robbery, Chatham would have finished his probation this July. Okay, see, so when you tell me we need the state to ensure fairness and equal treatment under the law, I say bullshit. I say bullshit for a variety of reasons, okay? So let's just go, let's just ignore what you just heard and go to the very beginning. This man is convicted of breaking into a home and stealing a $120 TV with two other individuals. Um, this is robbery, okay? Actually, this is burglary. Uh, you, you rob people, you burglarize structures. So there's nobody home. Um, doesn't use a gun to get in the door or anything like that. They, they, they kick a door down or whatever. They commit basic vandalism, break in and take a TV. He gets a 10-year sentence with probation. 10 years for breaking into a house stealing a TV. I can tell you that there are people that have taken lives with shorter sentences than that. Now, they're not generally first-degree murder convictions, but, you know, stuff like negligent homicide and things like that. So uh, understand that this man... Until that incident with that TV had no prior convictions. So, first of all, the travesty of justice here is that this man was sentenced to 10 years, even with probation, for stealing a $120 TV and breaking into somebody's house. Now, what do I think should happen to you if you break into somebody's house and steal somebody's TV? Uh, well, first of all, he's been paying restitution on his parole. You want to bet the person who had the TV stolen didn't get any of the money that he's paying as restitution? This is money being paid to the state to offset the cost of probating you. So what I think should happen to somebody that breaks in, on a first offense that breaks into somebody's house is that they should make sure that the individual is ma that they've burglarized is made whole. And then there should be some level of, of probably jail time, probably something like 30 days, uh, and, and then maybe some sort of probation parole type you know, thing that maybe lasts a year 
to make sure that they're not causing trouble again. And it should basically be a, a misdemeanor-level offense that should pretty much go away. It shouldn't impact the rest of their lives. It shouldn't be something that interferes with their ability to get a job or uh, to, to uh, own a weapon or, or anything like that, as, assuming it is a first offense, which this was. So the first travesty of justice is the fact that this man was, was even capable of receiving a 10-year sentence on a first offense for stealing a freaking TV set. I'm going to tell you something else, too. I believe this is racist. I am the last person to play the race card. I think the race card is so overplayed. But I honest to God believe if I broke into somebody's apartment and stole a $120 TV as a first offense, as a white male, I would not have been given a 10-year sentence with probation as a suspended sentence. I do not believe for a minute I would receive a 10-year sentence. The next travesty of justice. This man is supposedly a suspect in a robbery. He willingly walks in and says, I didn't do it. It's not me. I'm turning myself in. And up to this point has kept his parole to the letter. Right there, you should have a lack of suspicion. First of all, people that are out doing shit like this generally don't meet all the terms of their parole. They have problems with their parole. Number two, if he did this and he knows he's looking at 10 years plus, he's a very high flight risk if he's guilty. So that right there doesn't seem to, to bode well for the state's case. The next thing is that the witness constantly changes her story. Now, there, there's a real temptation in this to say to come down on this witness and say, this, this lady just you know picked this guy out. This. Here, here's what happened to this lady. She went through a traumatic experience. Um, he looks sort of like the person that did it. When she saw him, it burned into her brain that that was him. Um, she identified a single tattoo where there's much less prominent, there's much more prominent tattoos that she couldn't identify or remember. The person that burglarized her or robbed her in this instance uh, probably did have a tattoo similar or the same as. Like it's not like tattoos are trademarked um, near his eye. That's what she remembered. That's what she saw. And when she saw him and the tattoo together, it burned into her brain that he did it. She has very poor recall of this, not because she's a bad person, because she went through a traumatic experience. And first-person uh, witnesses in these situations are notoriously unreliable. So the state built a case that they thought they could make. And I'm going to tell you what I believe happened here. I can't prove this, but I bet if you do further research on your own, you'll find this is exactly what the case was. The prosecutor in the state went to this individual and said, if you'll plead guilty on this, we'll do five years or four years or whatever it is, and you know, you'll know you get some time off if you do your time well, and and you know the whole thing is going to be a very you know a minor felony if there's this such a thing. So they probably offered him less time to plead guilty than he was going to get with just losing his probation or his parole or whatever the hell it is. I think it was probation here. And he said, no, bullshit, I didn't do this. And this was the state punishing him for not taking the deal, because they could. America. America! That's what this is. This is disgraceful. This is disgraceful. This man was judged by a jury of his peers to be not guilty and then still thrown back on the original crime. Now, here is what you didn't hear, and it's not in the article that I'm linked to. Samantha, who sent this to me, noted that in the, the article she sent me, and the reason I didn't link to it is it's one of these sites with 5,000 gajillion ad servers running in the background. It's running all kinds of scripts and shit like that. It slows down your browser. I just I, I couldn't, in good conscience, link to it. But there was a line in there toward the end where his attorney said the following. Now, to be clear, this is not the prosecutor. 
This is the man's state-appointed defense attorney because he can't afford one of his own. He said, the judge followed the law and there are enough safeguards in the system. His client isn't being treated any differently than anyone else. And Samantha says, what the hell is wrong with some people? It's a disease. It's a disease. It also is a religion. It's called statism. It is the most dangerous religion on the planet. The belief that what the state does is right because the rules of the state that wrote for itself were followed to the letter. And he wasn't being treated differently than anyone else. I, I, I really want to know, how many of you believe that the average white male convicted of stealing a $120 television would receive a sentence of 10 years as a first offender? Seriously. See, this is a problem. This is a problem we have. We will not call out racism when it's, when it's blatant. And we won't do it because it's, it, it's, the, the, the card is so overplayed. I'm sorry. I don't see another explanation here. I don't see another explanation for a first-time offender on a simple burglary charge getting 10 years. Even though, oh, yeah, we gave you probation to go along with it. 10 freaking years? Come on. You give, you give me another plausible explanation and I'll examine it. This is disgusting. This is absolutely disgusting. This man was found innocent and then thrown into prison for 10 years. Because a judge decided, well, there wasn't enough for a conviction, but it's enough evidence for me to reverse his, his, his probation. Are you serious? This judge should be impeached. He should be disbarred. He should be thrown out. And you know what's going to happen because of this? Nothing. No one will do anything. Because it doesn't affect the temperature of the water in your pool. No one's going to do anything about this. It takes so much effort to do something about something like this that the average person, and God bless them, is going to go, I, I throw their hands in the air and go, I can't do anything. And you can't. You can't. This is why the systems of the state need to be made irrelevant. This is why the state needs to be obsoleted. Because this will never go away. And those of you that think when Jack talks about a stateless society, man, how, how would people that are just trying to get a fair shake, you know, when they're accused of a crime, get a fair shake? Well, it probably would be better than this. Because the first thing in the beginning, we're going to go back to, this is the important thing here. When someone breaks in someone's house and steals a $120 television, the first thing should be that should be done is the people guilty of the offense should be required to make the person they victimized whole. And then some safeguards should be put in place against that person committing further, further crimes against other people with more severe consequences next time around. And that is not what happened here. No. The state turned somebody into a, a cash cow, and now they've turned them into a prison slave. That's what this is. It's utterly disgusting, and I would love to see this judge disbarred and, and thrown off the bench. I really would. But it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Let's take another one before I blow my freaking brains out of my ears from being angry. Okay, next one here, and this is totally different, and it's a gun question, so I can get all my blood pressure back down to normal now. This is from Laura in Reno, Nevada. She says, hey, Jack, question, is there an existing .22 firearm that's able to accommodate both .22 short rifle and long rifle ammunition? Could this be accomplished by additional interchangeable barrels or adapters? My husband recently acquired 5,000 rounds of both short 
and long rifle 22 ammunition. We don't currently own a 22 firearm and are interested in making the purchase. Ideally, we would like to purchase one firearm that would accommodate both types of ammunition, either by design or barrel modifier adapter. I have heard about an adapter device with a 12-20 gauge firearm. Last resort, we could ultimately sell for purchasing two firearms, one of each size of ammunition. Thoughts? Love the show. Thanks, Laura in Reno. Laura in Reno, here's the good news. Every single 22 out there, 22 long rifle, will probably say the following on the barrel. 22 short, long, and long rifle. Okay? So they all will accommodate them. The only difference between a 22 short and a 22 long rifle is the case is shorter, and there's less powder in it. Generally, the bullet's a little bit lighter in weight, and there's less powder in it. So they'll all fire it just fine. There's no danger. Nothing bad can happen. Here's the, 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 the but. The but is that most semi-automatic firearms will not fire uh, and cycle with 22 shorts. Because they're, they're gas operated, so there's a blowback. So when you fire a round out of, let's say, a Ruger 10-22 or a, a Marlin Model 60, you shoot and there's a, a, a discharge. And even with a little 22, it's quite a bit of power. There's quite a bit of pressure in there. And when that bullet's going down the barrel, there's plenty of additional pressure available. And that pressure is used to cycle the bolt to the rear, and it then comes forward based on the power of a spring, it chambers a new round that can be fired again, and the cycle repeats itself. That's semi-automatic. And there's, there's recoil-driven and gas-driven, but it, it doesn't matter. There's enough there for you to understand the basics. So we have to have a round with enough power to cycle that action. Well, when the 22 rimfire first came around, it was actually the 22 short. This is well over 100 years ago. And, the, you know, the type of gun that a 22 would be fired in was, was never uh, a semi-auto. There were no semi-auto 22s, okay? It just didn't exist. We're talking 1800s here, late 1800s. And uh, so they, they came out with a 22 short, and then soon thereafter came out with the long... And, and long is almost all but forgotten today. And then the long rifle. And, and from that point forward, all 22s were 22 long rifles, but you would read on the barrel, you know, 22 long rifle, long and short, or 22 short, long, long and long rifle. Okay? So they all fired everything. Well, when the semi autos came out, they were, you know, by then 99% of the ammo that people bought was long rifle ammunition. And, you know, you, you, you weren't going to try to make this thing function at these much lower pressures, so they just didn't worry about it. The one other caveat, the rotary magazines that Ruger uses like in their 10.22 and their bolt-action 22s, my understanding, I've never tried it, my understanding is they have feeding problems even with a, let's say, a bolt-action with those shorter rounds in that rotary magazine. And there's a modification you can make. I've seen it on YouTube, but I'm going to tell you not to worry about it. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do, though. You need to sit down and think to yourself, if we're going to buy a 22 rifle, what do we really want and why do we want it? Are you only doing it because you got the ammo? Because you have a couple solutions here. One would be, if you just want a 22, but you want a semi-auto, sell the short. Sell the 22 short. There's people that would buy it. It's quiet. It's good for varmint and pest control inside about 50 yards. It's like turning your 22 into a really badass pellet gun. It's kind of what it's like. Um, or when you shoot it out of your semi-auto, you just have to use it like a straight pull bolt. 
It's not going to eject. You grab it and you cycle it manually. That can be done. Um, it would fire, but it's just not going to reliably cycle. So those are some things to think about. Do you really want um, a semi-auto 22? And are you going to not get it because of this? If you want... Oh, here's here's the way I look at it though. This is why I'm gonna not like steer you that way. I'm just gonna point that out. I believe that every person in this audience that wants to have a you know have firearms and wants to shoot and train and become proficient with firearms should own a 22 bolt action rifle. That that is what you should train with. That's what you should work with because the 22 bolt action makes you think about your shots in a way that a semi-auto can. I love semi-autos. Right now, laying by my windowsill, I can see the top of it is a 10-22. I love that gun. It's fun as shit. You slam one magazine there, you got 10 rounds, bam, 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 Mr. Squirrel, we can put you out of the tree 10 times over with it in a matter of seconds. I get it, and it's fun. But I'll admit, when I'm out and I've set some skeet up against a bank or something like that, and I miss one of them, I just real quick follow up with another shot, so I feel good about it. I get my instant gratification of seeing that piece of skeet break or that, you know, that spinner spin or that bottle break or whatever it is that I'm shooting at. When you're shooting a bolt action and you miss a target and you have to manually cycle that bolt, what it does is reinforce to you, I messed up that shot. Additionally, I kind of look at it this way. Your 1022, your Model 60, your semi-autos, That's your really fancy, nice car. What do I think every kid should learn how to drive before they get in, you know, a, a thing with a five-speed automatic turbo-hydraulic transmission or whatever? A stick shift. I really do. I think you should learn to drive in a stick shift. I know nobody does anymore. I did. I learned to drive in a, a, an F-250 Ford with a 351 Cleveland in it with a four-speed on the floor and a Chevy Monza with a five-speed. Those are the first two vehicles I ever drove on the road. And the reason I think you should drive a stick shift first is then any vehicle you ever have to get in, you can drive it. You won't ever be in a situation where there happens to still be a stick shift around and somebody needs to get to the hospital and it's their vehicle and you can't drive it because you don't know how. Conversely, if you're good at a stick shift, well then, when you get that automatic, it's an advantage. Right now, now you just don't have to worry about that thing. You understand more about the vehicle, the mechanics. You are more likely to pick on when something pick up when something's not going right with that automatic when it's not shifting when it should. All of these things make it a good, strong case to start out with a manual. That's your 22 bolt action. So if you get a 22 bolt action, with the exception, and I think this is maybe not necessarily true, but maybe true, with the exception of the rotary magazines for the bolt action uh, Ruger 22 then you don't have to worry about this. Any of the ammo will go through it. That's actually a big case that I make for 22 bolt actions as well. You can use your short or your long or your long rifle. All right? And it will function because you are the functioner. In that world, I have two that I highly recommend that you take a look at. One is the Marlin XT series of 22s. There's a whole bunch of different ones. Pick the one you like best. They're all very affordable. You know, you're talking under $200 for most of them. Uh, I have a Marlin Model 25. It's not made anymore. I have tens of thousands of rounds through it. That gun will still drive a dime-sized hole at 25 yards. And it'll still knock out a, a, a silver dollar at 50. No problem. Absolutely no problem. And uh, it's just Marlin is big on something called micro-groove barrels. I'm not going to get deep into it today. Go too long with the show. But um, 
it's inherently accurate, especially for the 22. And they, to me, the Marlin bolt actions, when you go into bolt, the world of bolt action 22s, are the most bang for your buck. Not necessarily the look and feel, fit and finish, but the quality when it comes down to does it work and is it accurate. Nothing touches it, in my opinion. Having shot Remingtons, Winchesters, you name it, right? Savage. And Savage makes a decent bolt action, too. I've even shot Weatherby 22s. Beautiful gun, but I love the Marlin for the price. The other gun that I would suggest you look at is the CZ 455. Um, these are beautiful guns, and they have the Marlin's accuracy. Wonderful trigger, triggers. Cost quite a bit more, but they are just awesome. Now, here's something you might want to consider. The thing is, by the question, I can tell you're not gun people. So this might not matter, but I wanted to let you know that it was available. Uh, not long ago, um, a company called Hornady came out with something called the Hornady Magnum Rimfire in 17 caliber. And this takes a uh, .22 case and it down to 17 caliber. Um, And CZ has a combo that the barrel swaps out like you were asking about. I don't know a lot about it, but when I was looking up the CZ to see what the cost was for you, um, I noticed they had this. And you could swap the barrel out and go from 22 long rifle, which will also shoot longs and shorts, to 17 HMR. Well, hell's bells. If I was in the market for a... A 22 bolt action today, and I had the money, and it wasn't going to be a big headache to do it. This is what I would invest in out of everything I looked at for you in this episode. Really fantastic option. Now, let's say you want a bit higher rate of fire that you can get from a semi-auto, but you want your longs and long and shorts and long rifles all to function through it. Um, then I would look to, and this is a, an expensive gun, uh, MSRP is a little over $700, street price is a couple hundred dollars under it if you look around long enough, but the Remington 572 pump action. Um, this is from a long lineage of Remington pump action 22s. They were making pump action 22s when nobody else was still making them. Uh, but they have stopped making like a entry-level version of this. It's the, it's the 572 is now made in only one trim called the BDL. And Remington's BDL is kind of the upper end of their finishes. Um, really, really nicely done. Uh, I kind of would like one of these. I, I really would. I look at that and go, I can't, I have enough 22s. I can't really justify it. I could easily justify the CZ because then it would put me into the 17 HMR territory and I don't have a 17 HMR. Um, but I look at that 572 and I think that, that gun would be so much fun to shoot. If money's not an object here and you wanted something with kind of that quick, peppy rate of fire, but you wanted guaranteed cycling, then I would look at this. Might I make another suggestion? There's a lot of people that like 22 shorts just because they're quiet, and you probably could sell it all, and you might be able to sell it all and use the money from selling that portion of your ammunition to invest in a better level of 22 overall like the CZ or the 572. Because the only reason you would want 22 shorts is to be able to shoot that gun where normally you could not. Um, you know, and even long, they make long rifles and subsonics as well. They also have some cycling problems with your semi-autos as well, though. So maybe you keep some of it just for that 
you know, squirrel that needs to go away that you don't want anybody calling the cops about. It all depends on where you live. Is that even an option anyway? You, you get what I'm saying. But just know that all 22 long rifles will shoot shorts and longs as well, just the semi-autos won't cycle for you. But again, my, my recommendation for things to look at for anybody in the market right now for a 22. Obviously, Ruger 10-22 is always at the top of the list. Marlin Model 60 is at the top of the list. The second best-selling firearm in the history of the world is the Marlin Model 60. It's inexpensive compared to the 10-22. Tubular magazine, really, really great gun. Uh, but for, for, for if you want to fire shorts, again, your semi-autos have problems. So the other ones I would recommend for anybody looking right now, the Marlin XT series of bolt actions, the CZ455 American, and check out the combo because it's not that much more money, and it's a beautifully made gun, and the Remington 572 pump. Man, I feel better now after that freaking story about that poor dude. I'm not going to think about that anymore today because, man, I'm mad. Uh, I got another question here about ammo, though, to wrap the show up. Okay, this one's from Alexander in Missouri. He says, what is the best way to store ammunition long term? I'm currently storing my ammo in old GI metal ammo cans, some in boxes, some loose in the can. I recently took a lot of 12-gauge target loads that I had purchased five years ago, and almost half of them failed to fire. I noticed there was rust around the primers and almost all of the rounds. What would be the best way to store ammo over long periods of time? Thanks, Alexander from Missouri. Okay, Alexander, your enemies to ammunition are moisture and heat and extreme swings in temperature, creating condensation, which creates the first one, moisture. The fact that there was rust on these rounds tells me that something's wrong. Um, let me tell you a couple stories of ammunition that didn't have failures in it first to understand how badly you have to store ammo to have this problem. So number one is, uh, many years ago, probably 15 years ago, SOG, or Southern Ohio Gun, came in with a big shipment of Turkish Mausers. These were 8mm Turkish Mausers that fired modern 8mm rounds. The guns, however, were made in the late 1880s and early 1890s, qualifying them as antiques, not even Kiro and Relic, but antique firearms, meaning they could be purchased and transferred uh, from one person to the next with no, um, no FFL, no Federal Firearms Licensee transfer, no forms, no nothing. You could just buy it, and they would send it to your house in a box, like the old days. Like you used to, My grandfather, I remember, I bought this shotgun from Sears and Roebuck from the catalog. They mailed it to the house. Like That's how people used to buy guns in America. Well, you, could, you could buy these. You could still buy them today that way because they are not a modern firearm. Now, the way they got barreled to 8mm was, as we were coming up to World War I, and World, actually World War II, and everybody saw the writing on the world, the world was going to war, the Turkish military was in deep shit, and they didn't have a lot of money. They had a huge cache of these Mausers. Uh, the, I think they were 1893 Mausers or something like that. Was the nomenclature or 1888s or so, whatever they were. And they fired some weird 7-point-something millimeter thing that was woefully inadequate for the new world. And they couldn't afford new guns, but what they did is they shipped all their Mausers back to Germany, and for cheap, because the Nazis wanted money, uh, and this was easy to do, and they were ramping up their production anyway. They just rebarreled them to 8mm. Now, what does that have to do with this question? Okay, so I bought one of these guns. I start looking around for 8mm ammunition. Well, about the same time, Cheaper Than Dirt got hold of an assload of 8mm uh, ammunition from the 1930s, same time period. And again, the Turks were strapped for money. and But they had an assload, and it was cheaper to buy 
uh, 8mm machine gun ammunition, and the one thing they did invest in was 8mm machine guns they also bought from Germany. So it was cheaper for them to get the, the machine gun ammo, which of course came in long chains, on chains to be chain belt fed into the machine guns. Well, they needed ammo for all these new spiffy rebarreled 8mm. So they had basically child and woman labor work in these basically sweatshops. And they took old material, they dyed it green, and they made bandoliers. Each bandolier had 10 pouches, and each pouch held two five-round stripper clips. So they would sew these things, and they would pull the, the uh, ammo off of the machine gun belts, and they would put it on a stripper clip and put two stripper clips in each one, and these were issued to the troops. Turkey didn't quite play the role of World War II that, you know, I think they expected to, and there was just ass-tons, metric ass-tons of this ammo left after the war. In the late 1990s, it surfaced. Cheaper Than Dirt got a bunch of it, and they sold each bandolier for $7.99, 100 rounds for $7.99. So I bought a bunch of it. And I said expect some misfires, expect some of it to be unusable. It's a piece of history, all that jazz. So it came, and you know, I would say one out of twenty, you just wouldn't, you weren't gonna put it in the gun and shoot it. Like it had like decrepit collars, like you could like work the bullet out with your finger, or there were cracks on the collar uh, of, of where the crimp was, or something like that. The rest of it looked pretty good. And I popped one into my my old eight millimeter Mauser, boom, and it fired just fine. I didn't put a single round into the chamber that misfired on me, not a single round. Okay? Think about how poorly that ammo was probably stored over all those years in that cloth. But here's the thing. That cloth probably moderated the effects of humidity. That cloth bandolier. So think about that. Now, here's the next one. Um, several years ago, I was uh, hosting a friend coming to my place in Arkansas before I moved back down here. And I realized... It <coughs> He was a kind of guy that didn't get to shoot guns much, and he always loved coming to my place because he would wanted to shoot guns. And uh, I looked, and I had no ammo for my – I had like five rounds, I think, for my forty-five seventy. I knew he'd get a kick out of blasting that thing away. So I went down into town to a little gun shop in town that I knew of and said, you got any forty-five seventy ammo? He said, I don't think so. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He goes under the counter, and he finds this used – like not used, old, like resold ammo. And it was a box of Winchester 405 grain flat points. And this stuff was so old, these were solid lead, right? They weren't jacketed. The lead was white. It had, like, gone, like, the, 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 the lead had corroded. And I'm like, what do you want for it? He's like, 40 bucks. I'm like, dude, look how old it is. He's like, 30 bucks. I'm like, come on, man. He's like, 4570 is expensive. I'm like, look how old this is. Who's going to buy this? And he's like, $25? I'm like, done. So I bought it for 25 bucks. I took it home. My buddy probably fired five rounds. I could have just not bought it. Um, and I just put it away. Well, we just did Granddaddy's Gun. So now, as old as it was then, this is another five, six years, it's been sitting in a cardboard box in my old military footlocker out in my garage for five more years. I took it to Granddaddy's Gun. Every single round that I put in that little NEF handy rifle fired just fine. What's up, buddy? Why is your ammo doing this? Why is your ammo not corroded, the lead corrosion, but rusty? My instinct is you have this ammo in a steel ammo can, and it should be fine in there, except 
you're you're somewhere where when you put it in, you're relatively high humidity, and then when it gets cold, the condensation settles, and it since it can't get out and it's sealed in there, the seal is actually hurting you. And what you're getting is every time that cam really cools down, it's all the moisture inside it's condensing on the on the ammo, and then when it warms up, it kind of comes back. You see what I'm saying? It's sweating. It's sweating. It makes me think of when I was uh, when I when I first moved to Texas and I got my first apartment by myself. Um, one night it was just hot as hell out, and I was getting ready to go out to the bars and I wanted to cool off before I left. So I like turned the air conditioner like all the way down. Like I don't know what the lowest setting it was it would go to, but it was going to say 52 degrees or something like that. I didn't even think about it. I just put it was not not the ones with the digital old school with the thing you just slide over. So I just slid it all the way to the thing. Took my shower, got ready, and forgot that I did that, and I left. And it was a real humid, early, like, late summer here is dry, but early summer is humid. Real humid night. And I get home, you know, about 2 o'clock in the morning with my Whataburger. And I walk up to the do my door, and I see a, a small puddle of water in front of my door. I'm talking about, you know, four or five inches in diameter. And I'm like... And it's, but it's not coming from under the door. It's like a, it's like an island of moisture. It's, it's, it's not touching the door jamb. Oh, what the hell is that? And I look at the doorknob, and the doorknob has a drop of water on it. It's sweating and it's dripping water, because it was so cold in the apartment that the cold was transing, transforming through the metal doorknob and causing condensation drip. I, oh God, I don't know what my electric bill is going to be and what's the temperature of the house. Actually, it felt pretty damn good. Could have put a case of beer on the floor and had it cold in a couple hours. Uh, and the electric bill wasn't that bad because I only did it one day, and I put it back to a normal setting. But I think that's what's going on with your ammo. So what's the best way to store your ammo? Ammo cans are fine, but they should be inside somewhere and maybe not in a garage with a very steady temperature. Another thing you can do is put some sort of a desiccant in with your ammo. Uh, and a real fancy way to do that would be get a, a, a breathable cloth of some kind and basically make yourself a, a hand-tied bean bag. But instead of putting beans in it, just put white rice in it. That'll help take up any excess moisture uh, in your situation. Some people vacuum seal ammo, etc. I found that the best way to store ammo is generally in ammo boxes uh, and just in a, a, a temperature-stable environment. That you know All of the other stuff... It can hurt you if you're not in that temperature-stable environment. And I have rounds that have sat out in that military footlocker for years in the garage. Temperature and humidity swings everywhere. I'm not saying it's best practice, but I'm saying I have no problems. You put yours in an ammo can, you got rusted primers. Rust can only happen in the presence of moisture, so we know it's moisture. So dry, stable temperature. That's, that's what you want to do. And you got to think about this. There's moisture inside the cartridge itself. Small amount. Big swings in temperature can cause condensation and then evaporation and condensation of that moisture. So even if we vacuum seal it in a vacuum seal bag, we still want stable temperatures. And again, that very locking in of the moisture could actually be a bigger problem. Now, if we include something like a desiccant, a lot of people say, well, an O2 absorber. Well, it's not food. It's bullets, right? It's not beans or band-aids. It's bullets. Oxygen's not our enemy here. Moisture is. So desiccant. 
So you can either buy a commercially prepared desiccant or use some sort of a, you know, I've always been a fan for desiccant of rice. Rice works really, really well and helps stabilize your humidity. So hopefully that helps you out. But that's what I think you got there. You got a great big evaporative uh, a condensation device in those ammo cans, wherever you're storing them. And it could just be that when you put the ammo in there, was at a particularly day of high humidity, and you locked, let's say the humidity was up at like 88%, and you locked air with 88% humidity in there, and then the temperature drops, and the humidity comes out of the air. You got it? That's, that's, that's what I think happened to you. Anyway, uh, with that, let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, do consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you can click a link there and get over to the Amazon deal of the day, or the Amazon items of the day, or the deal of the day, I'm sorry, and you can see all the great things Amazon has in sale. From that point, if you do your shopping there, you help support the Survival Podcast because we're an Amazon affiliate. So as long as you go through our link, you help us. But you also can see our, our reviews, our items of the day at tspaz.com. And I'm bringing back one that I recently did a video that, that pertains to it. That's why I'm bringing it back. It's the Kun Recon Julianne Peeler item of the day. You know, every survivalist needs a Julianne Peeler so you could Julianne your carrots and your salad. It doesn't sound very survivally, does it? It's, it's not survivally, but it's a legitimate kitchen tool. And the biggest thing we use ours for is making zoodles. And I just put the video out on making zoodles. I thought, you know what, I'll embed that video and bring this item back because this is an item that you need in your kitchen, especially as part of a healthy diet or if you're gardening like many of us do. This is zucchini season. Also, the zucchini start coming. Now, if you live in Texas in like the, the squash bug capital of the planet, we're just about to end our zucchini season for a while and have to replant later in the year when the squash bugs are knocked down and the vine borers are knocked down. <clears throat> But like, if you live in Pennsylvania, I remember in squash season, You didn't leave your car unlocked in small town Pennsylvania. Not because anybody would steal anything, because if you left it unlocked, somebody would like put a bag of zucchini in your back seat. I'm serious. So what do you do with all that zucchini? Zoodles are the answer. If you try to stick to lower carb living, you'll find that pasta is something you miss. So a zoodle, we take our julienne peeler, we make julienne angel hair pasta strips of our zucchini, we throw some salt on it, we let it sweat out. We drain it on some paper towel, and then we, we heat it up in some butter or some olive oil with some maybe some pepper and some herbs or whatever you want to do. A little garlic is nice in there, a little parsley. And it stands in as a noodle side dish or something like that. Uh, in, in the case of the one that I did the video on, I did some cherry tomatoes and some basil and some garlic out of our aquaponics system and some leftover meatballs, and that was a fantastic meal. And it took, like, no time at all to, to, to prepare Here's the thing about zoodles, right? This is what makes them so outstanding. Cooking them takes less than two minutes. Preparing them takes some time, but cooking them, about as soon as they're hot, they're done. It's squash. We're not trying to like make it completely cooked. It's not pasta. It's squash. So the beauty of them is when you're getting ready to start your cooking, you, you, you know, make your zoodles, you put your salt on them, you put them in a colander, you let them drain. Uh, after about 30 minutes, put them on some paper towel. That's a really great way to take that last bit of, of moisture off them before you cook them. And you just let them sit aside, you know? And when everything else is done, you throw them in a pan for a couple of minutes and, and you eat. So that way you have a nice hot side to go with your meat that's resting because you always should rest your meat after it comes off the grill or out of the oven or what have you. So it, it's a nice side because it easily pairs up at the end to finish well for you. So check out, the and as far as the, uh, the Julianne Peeler, The Conrican is, is like $11. It's French-made. It is fantastic. I mean, top-quality tool. A cheap one's like $7. Bucks. So this is one of those cases, like I usually say, buy the best you can afford. 
In this case, the best is so inexpensive compared to the cheap. Buy the best. Why would you buy a cheap tool when you can buy an $11 tool that's the best? Uh, this is like something French chefs prefer, that type of thing. You can find it at tspaz.com, or you can always find the items of the day uh, just scrolling through uh, the survivalpodcast.com. Again, if you do your online shopping through tspaz.com, you help support the show and the work that we do and the show that we bring to you every day. With that, we get ourselves now to the uh, song of the day. Song of the day today is called If Today Was Your Last Day. And John Adams selected us this one, I think probably because of all the times I'm saying, be careful how you use your dash and make sure you use your dash. Here's what John Adams has to say about this song. Nickelback, If Today Was Your Last Day. As Jack would say, get shit done while you can still fog the mirror. Many people I know are sick of Nickelback as they were played so much. The signature sound became mundane, but in the early to mid-2000s, they were a hot ticket. I have quite a few things to say on this. Number one, I am not the person who's like, I don't want to hear any more Nickelback. And you know why? Because I don't listen to the radio, and I haven't for a good ten years. Uh, I listen to Pandora. I listen to my own music library. I look for the songs on demand. If I do listen to radio on rare occasions I'm in a vehicle, I'm probably going to listen to talk radio to see what the idiots are talking about and see just how far the space has fallen since I created the Survival Podcast. Most of the time when I'm in a vehicle now, I'm either listening to Spotify, Pandora, Apple Radio, my own music library, or podcasts, you know, uh, other people's podcasts to hear what they're talking about because they make a lot more sense than talk radio. So since I never had, you know, 105.3 FM on your dial playing the hottest popular music, since I never had that on my radio for the past 10, 15, or more years, um, I didn't get overdone with Nickelback, which I understand everybody else apparently has. And I do kind of get that, like, their sound is, like, the same sound on every song they sing, but yet that would be every band ever. Every band ever sounds like themselves. Uh, I guess these guys just got a tremendous amount of radio play. This song's pretty good, and uh, I want to tell you what John means when he says, well, you can still fog the mirror. What I've said is the way you know whether your mission on this planet is done is if you can still fog a mirror, it's not. And you think about what it takes to fog a mirror. If you're laying there asleep and somebody holds a mirror up to your mouth, you'll fog it with your exhalation. So I'm putting a pretty low litmus test, right? Now, I do think there's people probably that can fog a mirror that they're, 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 they're done. They're terminally ill, they're end of life, whatever. But I don't think it changes the sentiment that I'm applying there. That's how low the litmus test is. If you could hear my words and understand them and fog a mirror, there's something to be done, and you are the person to do it. That doesn't mean that you're the only person that can do it uh, or what you're doing will change the world forever, but there's something important to be done that you're, you're to be doing. And, and I think that's a big part of what this song's about. You know, what if today was your last day? What would you be doing with it? What would you be doing with it? And I think the one commonality there is most people, whatever answer they came up with, would probably not be what they're doing today. That's the big deal. And I almost want to take the last day thing out, because I think last day you would obviously be with the people you love, and you would just, you know, try to try to try to be there with them and be there for them since you know they're gonna have to deal without you and in one way or another your troubles are over. So I almost look at what if it was your last year? What if you knew this is it? You've got 365 days to go and you're done. Because you can't sit around for a year just waiting to die. 
You'd have to get out and do something meaningful in addition to because you should be with the people you love, no doubt. But you'd have to have like you'd have to think to yourself, I want to damn well leave something behind that means something. What is that? What is it? Here's the secret to life, folks. When you figure it out and you go do it, you find success. That is the absolute truth. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. That's the step you take Is the longest ride If today was your last day Tomorrow was too late Could you say goodbye yesterday? Would you live each moment Today was your last day The gates, the grain should be a way of life What's worth the prize is always worth the fight Every second counts cause there's no second try So live like you've never lived twice Don't take the free ride in your own life If today was your last day And tomorrow was too late Could you say goodbye yesterday? Would you live each moment
Forgive your enemies. 